Welcome to Rising with the Tide podcast. In this series, we'll be departing from the discussions and interviews we've come to know us for to bring you a new style of podcast-based learning. We'll be bringing you a range of audio essays on a multitude of topics related to climate change, politics, history, and the human condition. Welcome to the Travel Diaries. In the first episode of the Travel Diaries, investigating the history and ideology of the Flemish far-right, we'll be taking a look at the rise, fall, and reincarnations of Flemish radicalism in Belgium, from the birth of a nation to its linguistic divisions and the rise of the modern Flemish far-right. Join us as we dive into history to understand the intriguing characters and origins of Flemish extremism. Before we begin, just a few very important disclaimers. First, due to the rather ambiguous ways we name languages in the region, we'll be using both Flemish and Dutch interchangeably. The use of Flemish will not refer to the dialects found in Belgium, but rather to the Dutch spoken in Belgium with its specific Belgian characteristics. This series will feature two narrators and plenty of complex Belgian names, which may not all be that easy to understand or remember for those of you who are not familiar with the language. Therefore, we have taken the liberty of making a few infographics you can find at linktr.ee slash risingwiththetide so you can get a clear idea of the big picture. And we've decided that we'll attempt to pronounce names the best we can, but please, native Dutch speakers, forgive us for butchering your beautiful language. Thirdly, we'll do our best to contextualize 20th and 21st century political extremism in Flanders, and this will include a focus on the Flemish movement and Flemish nationalism, as they have become an important part of the story of the extremism found in the region. Please be advised that these movements are not wholly intellectually interdependent, and the Flemish quest for independence and nationalism should not be linked in its entirety to the far-right activities which have often attached themselves to it. And finally, this series of audio essays does not equate to any form of endorsement of any person, nor political group and or organization. Now that that's over, let's dive into the roots of Flemish extremism. First, let's have a look at how the Flemish movement came about, its roots in the creation and rejection of Belgium as a country, and go for a brief visit down memory lane to the early days of Flemish nationalism, long before contemporary extremists infiltrated their groups. Let us travel back to November 1888 when Edward Gormans, member of the House of Representatives, made history with his first ever speech in Dutch. Translated from Dutch, Gormans says to his fellow representatives, The Honourable Mr. Barra said that an accused who knows nothing but Flemish must have the right to choose a lawyer who knows nothing but French. And Mr. Barra considers this choice a possibility. Have you ever heard a crazier claim? What would happen if, for instance, Mr. Barra himself, the well-known Tournay lawyer, took it upon himself to defend a Flemish defendant knowing only his mother tongue before the courts of Bruges, Antwerp or Ghent? The case would be dealt with in French. That is to say, the accusation and the defence are presented in French. But the questioning of the defendant, but the testimony of the witnesses, they cannot be done in French, they must be done in Flemish. I think I see Mr. Barra standing there with his jaw dropped to the floor, he pricks up his ears, mouth gaping wide. He would like to know what his client replies to the chairman's questioning. Does the defendant make any confessions? Does he deny everything? Mr. Barra knows nothing of it, and perhaps he will soon plead the opposite of what his client has said. Edward Gormans has the full attention of his peers. With the eyes of the house converging on him, he, like most others, are aware of the historic moment they have just taken part in. A member of the Belgian parliament has, for the first time, made a speech in Flemish. Gormans concludes a little later, this time in French. There exists in fact a legislature in Belgium which ordains that the promulgation and the publication of laws shall only be done in French, and that only the French text of the law is official. 
This means that since 1830 to 1831, the Flemish people, which today includes around 2,700,000 individuals who know not but Flemish, find themselves in the unjust and tyrannical situation of having to obey laws which they can neither read nor understand. With this tour de force, Cormance not only surprises his fellow politicians, but also makes a strong case for a nation that respects and recognizes the existence of half its population. Fifty years after it had gained independence, Belgium still did not acknowledge that much of its population spoke Dutch. Belgium, as a state, had only existed since 1830, with two revolutions in the span of 50 years, the second proving successful. Understanding some of the context behind the creation of Belgium is indeed necessary to grasp the birth and evolution of the Flemish movement. Historian Jane C. Judge writes in her book The United States of Belgium, quote, Most histories of Belgium begin at 1830, the moment of the creation of the modern independent state, often at the expense of the discussion of anything that came before. The first Belgian revolution of 1787 to 1790 succeeded in fostering a national consciousness. The old provincial identities remained, but they were now accompanied by a distinct feeling of being Belgian that was attached to political manifestations of being a distinct people limited to the geography of the southern Netherlandish provinces. Judge continues, explaining the importance of the first Belgian revolution of 1790, where the people living within modern-day Belgium and Luxembourg had risen against the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Joseph II. Though their Brabantine revolution was short-lived, 1790 was a crucial moment in Belgian, and therefore Flemish, history. Quote, there is still a success story here to tell. The revolution created a spirit of unity and a national consciousness that remained and would continue to develop into the 19th century. The self-proclaimed descendants of Caesar's courageous tribe with their ancient aristocratic government had evolved into a people who challenged an emperor and discovered themselves. A peuple belge lived in la Belgique. Belgium continued living under the rule of the Holy Roman Empire until the French, under Napoleon, annexed Belgium five years later, only to lose control of it during the Congress of Vienna in 1815. At the Congress, what is now known as modern-day Belgium and Holland, were united to form one singular state, ruled over by King William I. Over the years, unrest built up as it had under the rule of Napoleon, but for different reasons this time. Napoleon had caused minor uprisings throughout the country by forcing Belgians to fight in his wars and by imposing the French system of rule and law on the proud soon-to-be nation. With King William I, the issue was both a question of religion and freedom. Catholics objected against the interference of a Protestant king, while liberals demanded greater freedoms. The two sides eventually found an agreement and decided to rise up together as Unionists. On August the 25th, 1830, after years of disagreements with the king and a series of failed harvests, things eventually came to an abrupt conclusion. Belgians gathered to watch La Muette de Portici at the opera for a festival the king had ordered, but in preparations, rebels had posted coded instructions for an uprising. The public seemed tense with the opening of the first act. As the second act began, they became increasingly unruly. People shouted, sang along, all knowing something was building up. As the actors brandished their weapons, singing the chorus of the third act, spectators throughout the opera had risen to their feet, singing in harmony, run towards vengeance, with weapons, with torches, and may our bravery put an end to our hardships. The revolution was in full swing. Five days later, the unrest spread to every part of society. Volunteers came in from the four corners of the occupied nation and the revolutionaries fought with fervor, coordinating attacks and actions. A month later, as September drew to a close, the Dutch army retreated to the Orange King and on October 4th, 
1830, Belgium became an independent, sovereign nation. Though the Belgians had won their independence, new rifts and challenges appeared on the horizon. Belgium became a parliamentary monarchy in 1831, with separation of powers, a new House of Representatives, and a Senate as well as a jury system for the courts. While many celebrated Belgium's first unitary constitution as a triumph, some of the Dutch side of the country took issue with Belgium's preference for the French language. Professor Chris de Scaur explains this divide in his report for the UN RISD. When Belgium was created as a new state, the language of the people involved in politics was French, with a small majority of the population not speaking French but Dutch. This would gradually make the use of language a major political issue. During the 19th century, thus during the early days of Belgium, a mainly urban and middle-class-based group of intellectuals went on promoting this use of Dutch, tried to preserve the Dutch culture, and actually started to claim the right to use that language in public life and administrative matters. The newly born Flemish movement defended a non-homogeneous view of Belgium. It stated that Belgium was bilingual and that the use of a second language should at least be allowed and respected. Overall, they asked for individual language rights for the population of the North. The Flemish movement did not grow very fast, it started as a very marginal phenomenon and grew into a larger and also more radical movement because of the fierce refusal of the Belgian francophone elites to take its demands really into consideration. The marginality of the movement is also due to the fact that there is no real consensus about the nature of the second language. Dutch was a possibility, but also a problem. Dutch was the language of the Dutch state, and thus the language of the enemy. Flemish Belgians were now a sort of second class. It was unthinkable that the universities could teach in Dutch, laughable to think the francophones would learn Dutch, and eventually it was even accepted that French led to social mobility, while Dutch couldn't even help you read your own country's constitution. In the decades that followed the Belgian Revolution of 1830, as French cultural hegemony became clear, a number of Flemish writers, poets and philologists criticised the state of affairs. Historian Louis Vos writes in his book on Belgium nationalism, they regarded Belgium as a bilingual and bicultural nation, a blend of Romance and Germanic values. They considered the Flemish cultural heritage and the Flemish language to be essential components of a Belgian's national identity. They became the founding fathers of the Flemish movement. Flemish intellectuals such as Hendrik Conscience, Karl Liedegank and Jan Frans Willems, among many others, led this Flemish cultural revolution in many ways. Conscience himself had contributed with his passionate epic, The Lion of Flanders, which told the tale of the Battle of the Golden Spurs, set in the early 14th century. Conscience's tale of the Franco-Flemish War helped awaken sentiments of patriotism and nationalism within the Flemish movement. In his book, Professor Voss explains how the Flemish movement manifested itself, first on the cultural level, by means of literary circles, theatre troupes and literary output, these thoughts and ideas of freedom and equality quickly took on more structured political forms. Whereas in 1840 Flemish intellectuals still approached the language issue from within an essentially Belgian framework, during the two following decades this Belgian inspiration gradually diminished. The Flemish movement became a second national movement in which the petty bourgeoisie lined up against the ruling classes. The revolutionary wave of 1848 provided the Flemish movement with a democratic impulse, in addition to being a national movement, it more and more had the ambition to become a popular movement under the leadership of the lower middle classes. So it was through this wave of political inspiration that in 1862, the Meeting Partei was founded. The Partei contested and won massive victories in its home city of Antwerp, managing to institutionalise Dutch as the administrative language. Edouard Cormans, whose speech we heard earlier, was a Meeting Partei representative in Parliament, 
and with the help of the party, managed to pass language laws in the 1870s for the use of Dutch in courts, administration, and on coins. However, the Coromance de Vrindt law of 1898 can easily be pointed to as one of the landmark achievements of the Flemish movement. Named after the influential politicians, it decreed equal validity for the legal texts in both French and Dutch. After the Cormans law passed, every single law had to be written, voted on and published in both languages. Through the Equality Law of 1898, the Flemish people had finally gained the right to participate with equal ease and determination in the political system they had inhabited for decades. Belgium entered the new century with a renewed recognition of the Flemish language as an integral part of the country's cultural identity. Yet there were still important institutional rights to fight for, such as the introduction of Dutch in Belgian University or having the nation's constitution written in Dutch. The University of Ghent would make that change in 1911, but Flemish speakers would have to wait until 1967 to read their own constitution in their own language. Thousands of kilometres away, as Gavrio Princip's gunshot sounded the beginning of the Great War, Belgium prepared itself for the worst. Despite this, the Flemish movement lived on in the hearts of soldiers sent to fight for their country and those who stayed to support the war effort. Stories, very possibly myths, quickly spread of army officers, whose official language was French, causing the death of Dutch-speaking soldiers by refusing to explain their orders in a language they could understand. Orders were given exclusively in French, and concluded with a sarcastic, same thing goes for the Flemish. While there is serious doubt that any number of soldiers were led to their deaths by misunderstanding orders, the fact is that French was indeed the official language of the Belgian army. And with Belgium's linguistic battles, it is possible that major communication issues could have taken place. On October 31st, 1914, two months after the Germans entered Belgium, the country had fallen. By November, most of the country was under German occupation. One of the tactics German military leaders had planned for, to split the Belgian people, came to be known as Flamenpolitik. Louis Voss writes, During World War I, the majority of Flemish language activists remained loyal to Belgium and its government. They hoped the monolingual status for Flanders would be the ultimate reward for their loyalty. A small number of Flemish activists hoped to have their demands complied with by requesting the help of the occupier. They responded favorably to the Germans' Flamenpolitik, a policy of giving preferential treatment to the Flemings in their language so as to incite them to collaboration. These activists did not receive any significant support from the population and were designated as traitors by the Belgian government. Their reaction was to develop a nationalist ideology in which anti-Belgianism became a core element. In 1917, these anti-Belgian collaborators even founded the Raad van Vlaanderen, the Council of Flanders, with explicit support from the German occupiers. Despite their hopes and efforts, the traitorous separatists saw their request for legislative autonomy refused by the Germans, who likely never intended to honour their agreement. In the summer of 1917, towards the end of the war, a group of soldiers led by Corporal Adiel de Beukelaar founded the Front Beweging, the beginning of a Flemish political movement both at home and on the front lines. Flemish soldiers and intellectuals called on the Belgian army to treat its French and Dutch-speaking soldiers the same way, and to guarantee equal treatment after the war had ended. The Front Beweging was shut down by French-speaking army heads and its supporters sanctioned. But this socio-political repression was not the end. The Front Beweging was reborn two years later, in 1919, after the Great War, as the Front Partei, a fully-fledged Flemish political party. 
As Belgium slowly recovered from the horrors of the First World War, the idea of an equal rights for Flemish culture and society rose up from the ashes alongside it. Out of nearly 3,500 locomotives running in 1914, only 81 remained. More than 100,000 houses had been obliterated, and the countryside had lost 300 acres of farmland to the war. The 1919 elections saw the Front Partei enter the Chamber of Representatives with 6.3% of the vote. This was a first for the Flemish movement. They had finally had a formal foot in the door. The voice of Flemish nationalism was being heard in the halls of national legislation. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, the Flemish movement fought the status quo and earned some hard-won victories. Louis Vos writes, The programme of the pro-Belgian Flemish militants contained the following demands. A monolingual status for the whole of Flanders, the creation of monolingual French-speaking and Dutch-speaking units in the Belgian army, with the concomitant demand that officers be bilingual, and finally, official bilingualism in a central administration, so that the latter could have dealings with Flemish authorities entirely in Dutch. This very program was realized in the 1930s through the Language Acts of 1932, 35, and 38. On top of linguistic changes in administration and government services, as well as the huge victory that was Ghent University's adoption of Flemish in 1930, both Flanders and Wallonia obtained a monolingual status, with Brussels as a bilingual capital. However, even after such tough battles, not all Flemish nationalists were happy. A little more than a decade after the Front Partei entered politics, a schism appeared within its ranks. In 1931, the Front Partei's fascist right wing, led by Joris van Severen, split from the party and formed the far-right political party Verdaniso. As Verdaniso thrived on Flemish extremism and anti-Belgian sentiments, the Front Partei suffered heavy losses. By 1933, the first Flemish nationalist party was nearing its end. Louis Vos writes, In 1933, most of the other anti-Belgian Flemish nationalists supported the transformation of the Democratic Front Partei into the authoritarian Vlaams National Verbond, or VNV, in which anti-parliamentary tendencies were predominant. As such, the Front Partei was no more and in its stead appeared a set of twin newborns, the VNV and Verdaniso, both of which can be characterized as fascist far-right movements or parties. Verdaniso, led by Joris van Severen, who would be killed in France at the dawn of World War II due to suspicions of spying for the Nazis, is the less interesting and historically significant of the two. Verdaniso embraced radical elements faster and more thoroughly than the VNV did at the start, but after its leader was killed, Verdaniso lost its figurative head and joined VNV in the early 1940s. The VNV, on the other hand, thrived, led by Stav de Klerk with their slogan Authority, Discipline and Dietzland, the idea of a Greater Netherlands combining Belgian Flanders and the Netherlands. De Klerk began as a teacher and an activist in the anti-French movement of Flanders. He enlisted in 1914 as a volunteer and served throughout the war, after which he became politically active in the Front Partei. He was elected as a member of parliament for several years, but ended up leading it soon after. De Klerk pushed the Front Partei to the right and led its remodeling into the VNV, for which he was also elected leader. In the 1936 elections, the VNV, or VNV received nearly 14% of the Flemish vote, corresponding to about 7% nationwide. Three years later, in 1939, 
the party stabilized its vote share at 15% in Flanders and 8.4% nationally. Meanwhile, past the linguistic border, French-speaking Belgians were also witnessing the birth of a local radical fascist party, the Rexis Party. Created in 1935 and led by journalist Léon de Grelle, this Catholic, royalist and nationalist party modelled itself after the efforts of Franco and Mussolini. After a few years of building a voter foundation, de Grelle drew his inspiration more directly from Nazi Germany. He had initially joined the classic mainstream Catholic party, but deemed it to be too moderate. In the 1936 elections, de Grelle and the Rexis party earned a massive victory with 21 of 202 seats in the chamber and 8 of 101 in the Senate. From one day to the next, de Grelle had gone from frustrated and angry movement leader to the head of the fourth strongest force in Parliament. And so, as the Second World War creeps up on our little country, still suffering from growing pains, the Rexis party in Wallonia and the VNV in Flanders looked to each other and to Nazi Germany for support and collaboration. While our focus is on the Flemish side of things, it is still important to know that Flanders was not the only territory that collaborated with the Nazis. The Rexis party adopted even stronger fascist policies, anti-Semitic beliefs and even welcomed the German invasion of Belgium. Léon de Grelle worked closely with Nazi leadership to recruit Walloon soldiers on behalf of the Waffen-SS, joined the Walloon Legion and ended up taking refuge in Franco-Spain. He would later be sentenced to death in absentia, but Spain refused to ever send him back to Belgium, allowing him to die in peace in 1994 after causing so much pain and destruction. The Rexis party, while not a focus of this episode, is an important part of World War II Belgian collaboration. Léon de Grelle stands as one of Wallonia's worst children. His Rexis party helped enlist innumerable soldiers to fight for the Nazis, were responsible for the Courcelles massacre and helped Nazi Germany in their efforts to conquer the country. As the Germans invaded Belgium and conquered its lands, the idea of Flamen Politique resurfaced. Wallonia and Flanders suffered different fates. Germany had learned from the First World War and knew the potential of dividing and conquering. By giving preferential treatment to Dutch-speaking citizens, for example by setting their prisoners of war free but keeping the French-speaking ones captive, the Nazis knew they would divide and muddy the population's allegiances. Louis Voss writes about the VNV, Gradually fascist elements got incorporated into its ideology. Not surprisingly, it opted for full collaboration with Nazi Germany when, finally, the long-awaited German War of Revenge also turned against Belgium. This collaboration had been carefully prepared for quite a long time. While the VNV and Staff de Klerk may have thought that their efforts would be rewarded by Hitler in the form of autonomy for the region of Flanders, this was far from the Nazi leader's mind. Instead, he installed a German-controlled administration with the goal of total control over Flanders. Despite this betrayal of their own values of self-determination, the VNV saw a future in intensifying their collaborative efforts. The VNV leaders were given the role of mayors in several towns, but were still under the control of Nazi Germany. De Klerk led efforts to willingly collaborate in many of Nazis' most destructive policies by, for example, forcing Belgian Jews to wear yellow badges. Steph de Klerk died suddenly in 1942 and was succeeded by Hendrik Elias, an academic and philosopher who had joined the VNV from its early days. Elias held strong admiration for Adolf Hitler and was even appointed mayor of Ghent after the German invasion of Belgium. As the head of the VNV, Elias continued the party's collaboration efforts with Hitler and his generals and further implemented Nazi policies throughout the parts of Flanders it controlled. Hendrik Elias fled to Germany in 1944, sensing danger for himself and his fellow collaborators. He was arrested and extradited to Belgium, where a court sentenced him to death. 
His sentence was eventually commuted to life in prison after a successful appeal, and Elias was eventually released after eight years for health reasons, after which he worked on historical writings until his death in the 1970s. Like de Grelle, there is very much an argument to be made that justice was not served. As the bells rang, signalling the end of the Second World War in 1945, the Flemish movement stood at a turning point. Louis Voss writes, Following the liberation, Flemish nationalism as a whole lost all credit. In the early years after the war, the majority of the Belgian population looked upon everything Flemish as Deutsch-Freundlich, as pro-German. An autonomous Flemish culture survived the war, but nestled itself under the overarching umbrella of the Belgian nation. Collaborators were imprisoned or killed, the Germans were defeated, but the Flemish movement had also suffered a heavy loss. Though data shows almost equal collaboration numbers from the Dutch-speaking and from the French-speaking Belgians, Flanders was now associated in the minds of many as pro-Nazi and pro-German. The Flemish movement and Flemish nationalism found themselves in total impasse. And yet, this was just the beginning for Flanders. Thank you for listening to episode one of the Travel Diaries series on the origins and rise of Flemish far-right extremism. This podcast audio essay series is written by Tim Marin and myself, Skander Mana, and produced and published by the Rising with the Tide team. It means a lot to us that you took the time to listen to this entire episode. Good news is that part two, three, and four, covering the post-war Flemish movement, the rise of Vlaams Blok and of Vlaams Belang, are in the works and will be released in the weeks or months to come. For more information and more content from Rising with the Tide, please head to risingwiththetide.org to find everything from our podcast interviews with scientists and researchers, heads of organizations and leaders, to audio essays like these or infographics. You'll also find our roadmap for upcoming projects, as well as links to our Patreon if you want to support the show, all of our socials, etc, etc. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>